right. How you doing, everybody? I hope you guys are as excited as I am to get into the Word today. We have uh, a message that I love. I love going through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and I hope you guys are feeling the same way because, man, if you guys weren't here, I'd still be up here because I'm loving going through this. Hey, special shout-out before we get going to our visitors uh, whether it's your first time or maybe your second or third and you're just kind of trying to feel it out and see what's going on, welcome. We want you to know that it matters to us that you're here. It is so important to us. Whenever we have new faces that come through that door, we know what it means to come to a church for the first time, whether you're just visiting or, or, um, or you're really searching for a place to engage. It means a lot that you're willing to look at us and, and see what we have to offer. So, again, know that it's important to us that you're here. The ministry fair is a little bit different this weekend, but there's still, there's going to be plenty of time. Gabe and I will be hanging out. Our tables are adjacent over there. Come and talk to us. Talk to one of our ministry leaders. We want you to feel at home here. And that starts with kind of knowing what's going on and what we do. So, connect with us and, uh, and see, what, see what the Lord's going to do with that. So, um, also, I have a two-part... Um, instruction to the visitors, to the newcomers. One, again, that's that welcome. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. But the second one is kind of a warning. Welcome comes with a warning. Sounds ominous, right? Um, We are, again, teaching through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You You will get a lot of information today. And that's kind of the warning. If you're used to being able to just sit back and kind of daydream through a service, that's not going to happen here, okay? It can, but uh, if, if you want to catch what the Lord has for you, I, I really want to encourage you to just kind of engage and prayerfully think about what you're hearing. Because, again, there's so much information. But with that, let's get into it. Um, again, we're going chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 6 this week. Um, what we've done is we've seen at the very beginning where the Apostle John has been exiled to this island of Patmos because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And rather than just to kill him, martyr him like they did a lot of times, they exiled him to this island, which is great for us because in this time, he's able to receive this prophetic vision from Jesus about how things unfold in the end times. And that is super encouraging. If you've always seen the, Revel- the book of Revelation, as some people just call it the book of Revelation, but really it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything in this book, every word in this book points back to the Messiah. And we should always see it through that filter. But a lot of people, me included in the past, have seen it as a book of judgment, a book of God's wrath, kind of a scary book. Like, right? like a lot of people, I don't even really want to read that book. It's enough for me to know it exists, but I don't want to know about uh, lakes of fire and brimstone and all these things. And, And yes, that's in this book, but it's not meant to be a scary book of doom and foreboding. It's meant to be a book of hope. A book of hope and a book of of excitement in some cases, knowing that our God is sovereign. Jesus Christ the Messiah was put here for us to help us navigate times like this, to help us persevere in times like this when we need it and when there's no way that on our own strength we would be able to persevere in a time like this, we can press into Jesus and know that he's our guide through everything that comes our way. 
And then again, knowing that we have a sovereign God who foresaw all of this. None of this is a surprise that he's reacting to, the things that we go through in our lives, the things that we'll hear about in the book of Revelation. None of these things are surprises to him. He knew it was going to happen. And he knew what our reaction to it would be. And most importantly, he knew what we would need to navigate it successfully. And he's given us that. He's given us his spirit as a deposit so that we can navigate. He's given us his word so that we can press in and learn more about the word and learn more about what's happening. So it's so important as we go through to see the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ in that light. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, and I go back to this every weekend, says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. If we just pay attention to that one verse, you're blessed by hearing it, you're blessed by reading it. And so on that note, I intend to fully read every single word of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in this church. So if you come and you hear every, word, every series, every message, you are going to hear every word spoken and taught here in this church. Now, if you've missed some of them and you want to go back and check, we podcast, so you can go to Google Play, uh, iTunes, catch the podcast, or you can go back to our website and just listen to them directly through our website. It's very, very easy, but you can go back and check. So chapters 1 through 3, we see Jesus revealing Uh, you know, starting the revelation to John, and he starts out, one through three, really with words of exhortation and warning in some cases, encouragement to do better to these churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor. It's addressed to them. And then he goes uh, into chapters four and five, what we call chapters four and five, but um, they start setting the scene in heaven. They start setting the scene of the angels worshiping God, they, they set the scene of the elders surrounding the throne of God and the multitudes worshiping holy as our God. And it's just an incredible scene that's going on there. We see that in 4 and 5. And then in chapter 6, things take a bit of a turn. Things take a bit of a turn. And we're going to see that as we go into this. But as we go through this, again, my job is to read it. And to make the meaning clear, and going back to that verse 3 that I read, your job is to take it to heart. There's going to be more about that later that I'll talk, but just remember that. Take it to heart. So last week, a little rewind to last week, we saw the scroll with seven seals. We saw this image of God holding this scroll with seven seals. And they were wondering who is found worthy, who's worthy to open this scroll, and what is this scroll? Okay, so if you remember before, again, just a little recap, Revelation 5, verse 1, very first verse says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Book just is, is scroll. Back then they didn't have books with binding for the most part. So it was a scroll. It's the same word. Don't let that throw you. Written inside and on the back is important because as I taught when we taught that chapter, written Front and back a scroll implies fullness. There's nothing more to be added. There's nothing more that needs to be added. This is it in its final version. And so this is what we see. This scroll was a papyrus scroll, and we've actually got a little image of it. Now, you've seen uh, probably pictures of a scroll with seven wax seals across the front of it. 
Okay, so you had to break all seven seals in order to open up the scroll. That's not really what it was. It was more like this. So you see, as each scroll, you would, you would break the seal, and you could unravel that scroll to the first section, revealing what was on there, the first section. Then, and only then, would you break that second seal and unveil more, reveal more of what was on there, whether it was a title deed, it's some kind of a legal document, or in this case, revelation. And as you went, it was progressive. So we see this progressive revelation as we travel through this book. So this is where we are. The, the contents of the scroll, everybody's like, what's on the scroll? There was a scholar that described it, and there's many ways to word it, but I like the way he worded it. He says, the scroll appears from the context to be the title deed of man's inheritance, redeemed by Christ, and it contains the successive steps by which he shall recover it from its thief and obtain final possession of the kingdom. This is essentially what's on there. So we're going to go through and we're going to look now as chapter 6 opens up. Chapter 6 opens up and we start seeing the wrath of God. The Lamb of God is the only one found worthy to open this scroll and to reveal the future. And what it reveals from the very beginning is the pouring out of God's judgment. God's judgment and, yes, God's wrath against a sinful, rebellious mankind. And it's the consummation of Christ's kingdom, and it's necessary. So the first thing that you might be thinking is how can this God that we always talk about God as being a loving God, he's a loving father, how can a loving father pour out wrath on his children? How does this fit with the character of a loving God, a loving father that we've been taught about, and he is absolutely very much a loving father? But then here we see, and it gets terrible. I'm not going to soft coat it or anything like that. It gets terrible. Here's the thing, though. As we're going to discover here, our experience going through this tribulation, our experience going through these end times Uh, prophecies that are about to unfold here is based largely on our participation in what God has for us. Do you know this? You don't read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and say, we are just like leaves in the wind and we're just going to be blown about by whatever comes our way. We are powerless to do anything about it. We are powerless to make a difference. So it's just going to happen. And our goal is just to hunker down and survive. That's what so many people think. But the truth is, our experience is almost entirely based on our participation and what we do. And we are given everything we need, again, to even navigate this cataclysmic time in history in the proper way, in a way that's going to give us life. It's not going to be easy. He never promises that. But there will be life in it. So I want you to think about that description as now. So we've seen, we've been in the throne room. Now the scene kind of shifts back prophetically to earth and it starts describing these things that are going to happen on earth. I'm going to read chapter 6 of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 17. That's the entirety of chapter 6. This is the Apostle John speaking. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, come, come, 
I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's being rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountain and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Wow. That is a picture that's a heavy picture. That's a heavy picture. Did anybody notice something that was missing from that? The seventh seal. A little cliffhanger because we're going to talk about that <laughs> later, weeks to come. But this scene, we look at that, it, just, it begins to describe the progressive judgments of God. This progression of wrath that takes place during the time of tribulation that is that it's called, right? Now, we've all heard the word, many of us, most of us have heard the word tribulation. Tribulation has many different meanings. We're going to talk about it. We all have a, an image in our mind of what tribulation is. But as we go through these, it's progressive. Remember, it starts out with what these, these are called seal judgments. Each seal that's opened up is a judgment on a rebellious, sinful people. And then that progresses to trumpet judgments, which we'll talk about again. And then finally, bold judgments. Each one increasingly more horrible than the previous. There's no way to soft sell that. 
That's what happens. They increase in intensity until we finally get to the final cataclysmic battle of battles that's known as Armageddon. You've probably all heard the word Armageddon, and sometimes we kind of downplay or we have this image in our mind of maybe a movie that we saw or something like that, Armageddon. We all kind of know what that is. Armageddon, the name of it, comes from a mountain in Israel called Megiddo. Okay, now if you're going to join us on our Israel trip in March, we're going to go to Mount Megiddo. We will stand on that mountain and we will literally look over the plain where this battle is to have happened or is to happen. So we'll actually stand in that spot. Now let's talk about, though, before I go into the actual scripture, let's talk about the word tribulation. Does anybody have like a general idea in their mind of what tribulation is? Okay, most of us, trouble, pain, most of us, most of us kind of have a feeling in our mind of what tribulation is. And for the most part, you're probably right, but it's important to understand in context what that means. In the Bible, we look in the Word of God, and there are different types of tribulation. There's different versions of even that word, tribulation. And it's important and it's revealing when we look at that what this means. There are essentially two types. The word tribulation in all of its translations typically mean pressure. Okay, pressure being applied. But the two different types essentially are external pressure and internal pressure. External pressure being applied to you by something or someone else. Internal pressure, the kind that comes from within. Okay, and so we need to look at that. Let's look a little bit closer. Uh, Back in the book of Romans, Paul writes, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he writes this. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Okay, so here he's got both versions. He's got actually the word tribulation and then the word distress, which often also translates as tribulation. Okay, depending on the version you read, those, those two words are somewhat interchangeable. However, here they're both seen in the same verse. They have different meanings. And it's important to know that. First of all, you can leave this up here for a minute. The word tribulation right there translates in the Greek. Here's your Greek lesson for the day. Translates as the Greek word philipsis. Excuse my Greek. It's hard to pronounce the T-H sound. Flipsis. Flipsis, the definition is internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, or without options. Internal pressure that you're going to feel. The other kind, distress, also again sometimes translates in the same word, is actually a whole different word in Greek. It's stenokorea. Stenokorea is great distress caused by outside pressure being applied to you. And it's that type of tribulation, that type of pressure that Paul is most typically talking about when we see saying that in this world there will be trouble and you see things Jesus uses it. You see that trouble being applied to you. There are going to be persecution. Persecution is a great definition of that stenocharia. It's things being done to you to cause you trouble and pain. Okay, you can go ahead and take that down. 
That's those two different versions. But the word most often used in reference when we're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ and the tribulation that we will go through is thlipsis. So what does that tell us if we look at that? Let's look at Revelation 1.7. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Remember, mourn, that word mourn is not just like, hey, I'll wear a black armband and I'll send him a card. That mourning literally means to wail in pain. To wail in pain. It hurts so bad. And this is saying all the tribes of the earth are going to see what they have done when he comes in the clouds. They'll see what they've done and they will wail in pain. How does this translate then or how does this apply back to the word philipsis? This pain, this wailing Intense pain and mourning is going to be internal. It's going to be the realization that I had time to make a difference. I had time to make sure all of my loved ones and all of my friends knew Jesus. I had time to live the best life that I could in the spirit while here on earth, and I didn't take advantage of it. And now it's too late. This is the morning that we're going to see. This is the tribulation. When we're talking about the great tribulation we're going to go through, this is not to downplay the earthquakes and the brimstone and all the things that are going to happen. What this is to tell you that a loving God gave us every opportunity to experience this tribulation differently. We're all going to go through the physical things. We can't avoid that where your mind is as you go through it. Are you going to wail with the revelation that I could have done more when I had the time? I knew better. And I didn't take advantage of my opportunity. This is what we're talking about. Any physical suffering that we go through is going to pale in comparison to the internal heartache of knowing it could have been different for us and for our loved ones. So as we go then further, the events leading up to this final battle that we're talking about are described by Daniel. The angel Gabriel describes it to Daniel in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12. Now remember, Daniel is the Old Testament, or it would have been called the Holy Scriptures then, right? Because the Hebrews, that was, that was all they had. There was no old and new at that time. Daniel was their apocalyptic literature, their end times literature. So the book of Daniel very much describes the very same things that we see here in Revelation, but from a different standpoint. But the book of Daniel, especially in those chapters, 7 through 12, really lays out the time frame that all these things are going to happen. There's a branch of study called eschatology, and eschatologists, you don't need to write that down because I'm not going to spell it for you, eschatologists, but you'll sound smart if you can bring that up in just random conversation. They have done studies on this. They have gone through, they've done the math, and they have essentially determined, and it's accurate, that there's going to be essentially a seven-year period of tribulation. Okay? Now, no sooner than they come out with that, then people start parsing that and saying, well, there's 
There's pre-tribulation, there's mid-tribulation, there's post-tribulation, and we start arguing about that. Scholars have and will continue to argue about virtually every single verse in this book for centuries, and they will continue to do it until we are there and we say, oh, I see how this works now. I had it all wrong. It's going to continue to happen, but if we look at this seven-year period, okay, he's given this vision, so we have this seven-year kind of time frame to work with, and that's going to come into play here in just a minute, but Daniel, interestingly enough, at that time, although he's given this timeline and he's given the things that are going to unfold, he's also told this, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, says, but as for you, Daniel, this, remember, this is the angel Gabriel speaking this to Daniel, Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So what does that mean? Let me translate that for you. What that means is people now have no context. At that time, have no context to understand the meaning of this. But when the time comes, when things start to unfold, people will be desperate for truth and desperate for knowledge. And at that point, they will be going back and forth, means frantically. They will be frantically searching for something to hang on to, some truth to make sense of everything that's going on. And at that time, knowledge will increase through their fervor, through their zeal, and now their motivation to dig into the Word. Does that make sense? Hide it. Not keep it out of sight so nobody can ever find it. But when they need it, it's there. And when they search for it, they'll find it. So true in all of Scripture. But it's unfortunate that usually our motivation has to come through bad times, through grasping for something real in this world, and then we find it here. How much nicer if we could just stay anchored in that truth every day. But there's so much comes our way that it's difficult to have that kind of zeal, that kind of motivation. But he's saying very clearly, in those times, you'll be motivated, trust me. So Jesus himself lays out the details of the tribulation, and it's recorded a couple times in the New Testament. This one's out of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 4 to 7. I'll just read it to you. Jesus is prophesying about the Antichrist and the tribulation to come. He says, and these are the disciples uh, talking to Jesus, and he says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. All of this, he's saying, don't be afraid. It has to happen. But then Matthew 24, 8, kind of a little exclamation point. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So all those things I just told you about sounds terrible, right? It's just the beginning. Now he tells them this. <clears throat> Excuse me. He tells them this so that they can focus on their mission. He tells them that to place a sense of urgency on their mission, but not so much as to distract them from their mission. 
Okay, and that mission is very much the mission that we still have today. So let's go in and let's look at what each one of these individual seals reveals now with kind of that context in mind. All right, so let's go Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. All right. Those, the, uh, no, go back. Oh, there you go. When these, the four living creatures, these are angels, okay? These four living creatures are angels. Let's look at some of the uh, symbolism that's here. Okay, the white horse. The white horse represents an unprecedented time of peace. White horse represents peace. Okay, who do you think the rider of the white, he who sat on it, who do you think he who sat on the white horse, this unprecedented time of world peace, who do you think the rider is? Yeah, no, John, John's got his cheat sheet, so I always have to ask him, just like, hold your answer, I know you know, he's always the first hand to come up in class, right? You would look at that, and maybe at a quick reading, you would go, well, that's the Messiah. He's got a crown, okay? He's got the white horse. He has everything, and he's conquering. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist that we're learning about. He will oversee, not only oversee, but he will broker a time that's unprecedented of peace in all the world. And... The symbolism of the bow. Sometimes you see pictures of this, and, and the bow always shows the, the rider on the horse with a, with a bow, and he's drawing back, and there's an arrow in it. That's actually wrong. The symbolism here of a bow with no arrows indicates that he is capable and ready to make war, but it's a bloodless war. He's going to do this by treaty. He's going to do this by deception. He's going to do this by negotiating and we will willingly give up our rights. We will willingly give up and follow this Messiah because we'll be able to see the peace that he's creating throughout the world. And who wouldn't say, this man, he's not even fighting battles. He's not using nukes. He's not, he's, there's not one drop of blood being shed here. And he's creating this time of world peace. Isn't that what we all want? Let's follow him and do what he says because he's got it figured out. This is the deception of the Antichrist, and we'll find out here in just a minute. The crown was given to him. Again, symbolic. He's going to be elected by unanimous decision as ruler of the world. And he will be given control over all the governments of the world. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is what he did. Conquering nation after nation after nation, bloodlessly so as to gather a following, so as to lull us into sleep, saying, he's, he's really a good guy. Let's follow him along. This is where we are. Second Thessalonians and Daniel 9.29, I'll read Daniel 9.27 first, describes this Antichrist. He will promise peace and protection, but will destroy. 
That's from Daniel. And then 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. This is the Antichrist. Be aware. Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Red horse signifies war. Now that everybody is under the the spell, so to speak, of the Antichrist, things turn dark. The second horse of war went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take this peace from the earth. Now, this is a time of wholesale war and murder and slaughter, and it's bad, and it's ugly. Men slaying one another, the great sword given to him signifies he has been given authority by God to do this. This isn't something that's happening outside of God's power. This isn't something God is unaware of. God is sanctioning this as a tool of his wrath. It's important to understand that. Hmm. Revelation 6, 5 and 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Black horse symbolizes famine. The black horse symbolizing famine. Years and years of bloodshed and war and, and killing one another has led to worldwide famine. There's chaos. There's nobody to work the fields anymore. There's nobody to prepare food. It's all just war. So now there's famine. The scales, the scales in the horse, in the hands of the rider, indicate um, rationing, government rationing. So now this world government is going to determine what you get to eat. And how much of it you get to eat. Where it says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. A denarius was essentially at the time uh, a day's wages. So a day's wages would buy you a quart of wheat. A quart of wheat was also essentially what it took to sustain a man for a day. What that means is that you are no longer looking towards the future You're no longer putting aside something for the next day. You are simply working to survive. You're working one day to live one day. And that's all you get. Now, where it says three quarts of barley for a denarius, barley at this time was reserved specifically for feeding horses and livestock. So it was was animal feed. Saying so, if you wanted a little more, if you were hungry or your family was hungry, yeah, you could buy a little more. You could buy the animal feed. That's what you'll be reduced to. The oil and the wine is simply a reference to something that at that time was a staple, but it's going to become a luxury. Oil and wine, we may consider them a luxury now. Back then, that was a staple of their diet. 
Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. That sounds terrible. This rider was granted authority to kill off 25% of those remaining after this wholesale bloodshed and time of war that had been going on. And Hades... Coming along with death, Hades is the place of the dead. It's where the dead resided, so it makes sense that the two of them would come hand in hand. But remember, back in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 18, it says, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is Jesus. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Death and Hades, they're riding in. This is a terrible scene, but again, we need to remember Jesus has the power. He holds the leash. He holds the keys to death and Hades. Again, what's happening here is sanctioned by God. This is the judgment. This is the wrath that is necessary for the consummation of the kingdom. Now, these first four seals, they call them sealed judgments, remember, they are to have taken place, so they are to take place during the first half of this seven-year tribulation. So basically, these things we're talking about all happened in the first three-and-a-half-year period of this tribulation, and then we reach the midpoint. But now, before I go on, these first four seal judgments that we look at, what are they, anybody know what they're commonly referred to? People talk about them, they commonly refer to them. The four horsemen. Yeah, we actually have kind of an image, and it, it's not the greatest image, but if we could show that real quick. Yeah, this is called, the, this is simply called the, I think it's called the pale horse. You can look it up. It's a, it's a beautiful painting. There's so much power, and so much chaos, and I apologize that it's not as sharp as it should be. But you can see all the horsemen, and again, in this one, the first horseman on the white horse, he's got the, the bow drawn, and there's an arrow in it, which, again, is, is theologically, it's in error. But let's move on. You can take that down. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there's one more, right? Yep. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. This indicates that the number of those people isn't complete yet. When it talks about those saints, what it's talking about, their blood, you go all the way back to Old Testament Scripture, and when they're talking about, um, let's see, I lost where I was. I got, I got too far ahead. In Leviticus, in Leviticus, the blood of sacrificed animals would be poured out at the base of the altar. And so what this is saying is that these people, these saints that are, that are, 
were martyred for holding true to the word. Okay, these are Christians who refused to recant, and thus they were martyred. And it's their blood that is beneath the altar. They're crying out for justice. But while this is happening, they're being told, just wait, it's not over yet. So when people start arguing pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, this is one of the things that they look to, saying, hey, here we are at the midway point in this tribulation period, and the number of those who are going to be killed in the name of Jesus has not been completed yet. It's still going on. This is where we are. Christians martyred for their faith, crying out for justice, wearing the white robe, though, of those who had persevered. Uh, that and the crown, remember, those are always symbolic of those who are persevering. But this martyrdom is not finished yet. So that's the fifth seal. That's the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Let's move on. Revelation, Revelation 6, 12 to 17. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Let me stop there and just give you some imagery. A fig tree, when it was super ripe, all you had to do is go up and shake the fig tree. And the figs would just fall out of the tree. That's how they harvested a fig tree. He's painting a picture of the stars in the sky falling in that same way. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Meaning no matter, it doesn't matter your station in life from the lowest to the highest here on earth, you are all going to be fearful of the wrath of God to the point where they're saying, I would rather just be crushed by a falling rock right now than have to endure any more of this. This is what's happening here. As terrible as those first five seals that we saw were, they were all done by human hand. The war, all those things, it was all human hand. This, now we shift, this is God's power. This is God's power, moving mountains, causing stars to fall, wreaking his wrath Upon the earth. No man can stand against it. No man could even fathom standing against it. They would rather be killed by a falling rock. So the sixth and seventh seal judgments, the sixth I just read, the seventh which is to come, take us to the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Okay, and we'll talk more about, again, that seventh seal later. Next week, we're going to look at, anybody ever heard the term, the 144,000? Ever been curious what that means? We're going to find out about that next week. And we may get into the seventh seal as well. So our response to this, what's our response to a message like this? To go, all this wrath and this, and this terrible tribulation that's going to go on, what is our response to this? How do we look at that and reconcile a loving God with all this judgment that's happening? As usual, I think the best way is to go back whenever possible to the words of Jesus himself to give us clarity on these things when they come at us. I'm going to read this to you. This is out of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 32 to 42. Ten verses. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This is the rapture that we've heard about. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming on up. Jesus was giving his disciples this warning about what was to come. Again, trying to place a sense of urgency in them. But they didn't have the full context to understand. We have centuries of scholarly study and spiritual insight to help us see what's coming up. But our focus should be the same as it was to those disciples. The focus they had was, should be the same focus we have now. Theirs, the mission they were given by Jesus, is to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Not because Jesus needed more followers, because he needed us to understand our place in the kingdom and our future should we choose to reject the spot that was made for us should we choose to reject that it's all on our choices so we were given the revelation of jesus christ for the same reason our focus should be the same as theirs but also for these reasons as encouragement to persevere no matter what no matter what comes our way we have to hang on and we have to persevere it's going to get worse before it gets better And we have to know that and we have to hang on. To place a sense of urgency to our mission, the time is near. To illustrate the consequences of failure to heed the words. And again, just to underline it, because now the time is near. We don't know if that's tomorrow or next week or next year or 100 years from now. But we knew, though, we're not going to know when it comes And so there's no more time. There's no more time for us to say, I'll get right with God later. I'll worry about my spiritual warfare, or my spiritual well-being, that is, later. I'll worry about whether my loved ones, my family, my friends, whether they know Christ, I'll worry about that later. Because it's just kind of a busy season for me. There is no more time to say, I know what I'm doing in some ways is not right. I know I'm engaging in these sinful behaviors, but there's time. I'll make it right later. I'll repent later. I'll live differently later. There's no more time to make sure that our loved ones, our friends know Jesus and that our relationship with him is solid. 
We don't want to be in this time of tribulation experiencing everything that's going to come our way and it's going to be hard. You add onto that the internal pressure and anguish of knowing I could have done this better. I could have lived differently and my experience here and now would be entirely different. I don't want to be crying out in anguish because I knew that when I had the chance, I could have made sure my loved ones were there and they're not. Revelation 1-3, to go all the way back to the very beginning. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. You can't just hear these words and say, okay, sounds good someday. Heed the things means take them to heart. Let them change your heart. Let them change the way you live your life. It's important. This is not a hateful, vengeful, wrathful God that puts this down there. This is a loving God saying, look, this is what's coming. You have a chance to change your experience and that of your loved ones through this time. This time is coming. It's a freight train. It's not anything we can step out of the way of. It's coming. Our experience is based on what we do here and now. What will your experience be? What will your experience be? So as we go into our response here, I want to, um, we're going to introduce communion here in a minute, but I want to pray that we would all be open to letting God change our hearts. And let's take this time to those sinful behaviors we have, those things that we think are okay and I'll fix them someday. Let's take this opportunity to repent right now. And let's say this prayer of repentance together. Would you join me? Father God, we thank you that no matter what we see happening in the world around us or things that are to come, God, we know that you are a loving God. And we know that your point is not to scare us into living the right life. You love us enough to throw us a lifeline. You love us enough to give us a roadmap of how to navigate what lies ahead. And so, Father, We repent of those things that are keeping us from the fullness of who you are, those things that are separating us, those things that we are allowing to come between pressing into you closer to fulfilling our mission here on this earth. Lord, we lay those things at the foot of the cross and we give them to you. Father, change our hearts from the inside out. Help us. Help us to have a sense of urgency as we walk forward, as we walk this day out and the next day and the next day. Help us to remember the sense of urgency that the time is near. Not through fear, but through wanting to do everything we can for those that we love. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, who you have always been. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into communion now, a time of celebration. Let's celebrate what Jesus did for us to help us navigate this. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, and you can serve yourself there uh, or serve your family. Up front, Gabe and I will have wine and the bread and the crackers, and we would be happy to serve you same way you just dip it and take it like that. You don't have to be a member here or anything in order to take communion. You do have to be a believer in Jesus. And simply just be thankful of what he did. This is what we do, communion and remembrance of him. 
So let's do that. In a couple songs, the worship team, uh, Jack, will probably uh, give you some instruction. If you have children, after a couple songs, go get them and bring them back in here so that our nursery and kids church workers can come in and help with the ministry fair. I urge you to not leave, okay? After you're dismissed, go in the back and check out our ministries. Maybe your engagement with what God has for you starts simply by saying, I'll engage with what this church is doing. I want to be a part of this body and help it fulfill its mission. Maybe it starts there. But go around and touch base and let the Spirit speak to you on where you should engage. Maybe you're already engaged in some other way, and that's fine. But none of us can afford to just sit back and say, someday when my life gets a little better or things are a little less crazy, then I'll engage. Church, the time is near and the time is now. Amen? Thank you, guys. Jesus, thank you. To the one who's seated on the throne above all thrones. To the one who saw fit to gather all his children close. To the one I feel in the sunlight on my skin. To the one who shattered every remnant of my sin. To the one who
you redeem. 